Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we give you all the praise because of that truth. Lord, our lives are eternally changed because Christ has risen from the grave. And God, we pray with the psalmist who in Psalm 85 says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Lord, we pray that you would show us your steadfast love and grant in this place your salvation. And God, we especially pray with the psalmist that you would let us hear what God the Lord will speak For, Lord God, you speak peace to your people. You speak peace to your saints. So, Lord, don't let us turn back to folly. God, we thank you for who you are. And God, thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us now, who is here to reveal more and more the blazing, white-hot glory of your Son, And God, humbly, we confess, Lord, we need you. God, we can't live apart from you. We can't do this apart from you. And so, God, help us now as we open up your word. We want to hear your word, Lord. Would you soften the hardness of our hearts? Would you open our closed ears? God, we want to see you in all the light of your glory. And so, God, work among us now, we pray, Lord, for supernatural hearing. God, we give you all the praise, and we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. 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 It's so good to be with you worshiping this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up and turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's an easy one to find this morning. The first pages of Scripture. We're excited to announce to you that this weekend we are starting a new sermon series, and we actually sung the sermon series already. The name of our sermon series is Faithful Then, Faithful Now. And I think this sermon series really captures kind of where we've been as a a church. We can be honest as we look back on the past two years that it has been an up and down roller coaster in the life of our church. I think every church can say that that's endured through COVID. If you've survived COVID, you have been on a roller coaster really. And yet we recognize that even in the context of our church, God has done much in the life of our church. Even just to mention the changing of a staff, but not even to mention the things that have happened in our own lives. And we look on, back on this, these two years and we can look back and, and say God had, was faithful. God was faithful then. Over those few years, God was faithful. And if we just spent the time looking at all the things that God had done, all the ways that God had revealed his grace in those two years, Well, we for an eternity be able to say that God will forever be faithful. And yet the witness of Scripture is that we don't just look back on those two years. We look back on our whole life. We don't just look back on our whole life. We look back to Jesus coming in the flesh. We don't just look back to Jesus coming in the flesh. We look all the way back to the beginning of time. And what we find is that forever God has been faithful. And if God has been faithful for all time, then the exhortation to us as a church is that we trust that he will be faithful now. God was faithful then, 
He can be faithful now. And the more faithful we come to understand God to be, the more trusting we will be in God that he'll be faithful now. That's just how it works, doesn't it? If something in your life has proven to be faithful to you, you trust it to be faithful. In fact, I have a car at home that I talk about a lot. I'd even maybe put it in the category of I brag about a lot. And I've probably talked about it in my sermons before because I love this car and it's near and dear to my heart. It's a 2004 Toyota Corolla. And I got to tell you that this 2004 Toyota Corolla is one of the most faithful cars you will ever meet. A few months ago, I heard a little rattling in the engine and I thought, this has got to be it. Like this thing's coming up on 20 years. And so I took it to the mechanic. I was ready because this car has been really good to me. And if it died now, I would say it was a faithful car. Took it to the mechanic, thought it was the last day. I walked out of there paying a $30 bill. And I realized this car is going to be faithful forever. Well, I'm going to eat my words someday and that car will die. But we understand this principle, don't we? That if something's faithful to us, then we trust it more and more. If you know a person in your life who's always on time, you start to get worried when that person is a minute late. That's just who they are. They're never late. And church, what we're going to see as we open up the pages of Scripture is that we have a faithful God. If we can illustrate these principles from cars, if we can illustrate these principles from people, how much more can we pull this truth from God's Word? If He was faithful then, He will be faithful now, and he will be faithful for all of eternity. This is just who God is. And so this is my prayer for this series, is that the Holy Spirit would do this work in each of our hearts, and we need the Holy Spirit to do this because we can't do it alone, that the Holy Spirit would do this work to reveal to you the faithfulness of God, that looking forward, no matter what trial comes, no matter what circumstance comes, you trust in God's faithfulness. Genesis, it means origin, or beginning, which makes sense because it's the first book of the Bible. Genesis is written by Moses, and Moses writes Genesis to uh, the nation of Israel as they're wandering through the desert. And so we even, by the very writing of Genesis, come to understand its purpose in the Bible. See, Genesis is written to the people of Israel to place them in God's redemptive story. People of Israel had come out of Egypt, and they looked back, and, and they constantly had this question, where do we come from? We don't have a home. What's our history? And Moses writes Genesis to show them that their history is with the foundation of the world. Moses wants to show them their place in history, but he wants, also wants to encourage them, just as God wants to encourage us as we walk through this book, that he is faithful. God was faithful all through the pages of Genesis. God is going to be faithful to deliver them through the desert. This is what we need. It's true that you can't really understand a story, whether it's a movie or a TV show or a story that someone's telling you, or even more so the story of your life, if you don't understand the beginning. Every once in a while, my wife will be watching a TV show, and she's like in season four, so she's pretty deep into the plot, and I'll come in, and I'll start watching it with her, and I start to make all sorts of assumptions about the show. Oh, well, this is the good guy, right? He's a doctor, and it turns out, no, that's the evil person, and he's killing everybody, and I start to make assumptions about the plot and how it's going to end and what's going to happen, and after a few minutes, my wife will pause the TV and look at me and say, are you here for a reason? 
And the reality is, is that, that we've probably experienced this. Maybe we've missed the beginning of a movie. You know, you're, you're a few minutes late, and no, it's fine. We're just going to miss the previews. But you end up missing the first few minutes, and you spend that whole movie kind of scratching your head, asking the question, what is going on here? Like, did I miss something that was important? Hopefully, this is one of those, like, bad movies where the first few minutes is just fluff, and you have no idea why it's happening. But I have no clue what's going on. Now, with Genesis... The reality is that you can't understand God's word if you don't have the pages of Genesis. Because the whole redemptive story starts in Genesis. Genesis tells you about God's original plan for this world, how he created us in the garden of paradise to be perfect and without sin. But it also tells you about the fall and what happened and what went horribly wrong in the garden. And then Genesis begins the redemptive story that carries throughout all the pages of Scripture. And so if you miss the beginning of the redemptive story in Genesis, you really miss a foundation for understanding the story of God's Word. But Genesis doesn't only do that. Genesis gives us a foundation to understand the story of God's Word, but the reality is that Genesis also gives us a foundation to understand the story of our lives. And the title of this message is The Origin of Our Story because I want you to see in Genesis 1, verse 1, that this is where your story as a human human being begins. And that without understanding your origin, you can't understand your significance as a human being. You can't understand your purpose as a human being. I mean, really think about it for a moment. If you don't have Genesis 1, 1, Now ask yourself this question, what's really the significance of your life? And you say, well, the significance of my life is to work. I mean, I'm I'm getting promotions, and I'm getting raises, and and I'm really advancing, and it's bringing me a lot of joy. And yet we look at that, and, and we ask, what's the eternal value of that? And we realize that often what happens is we work for many years, and then we retire, and there's a party, maybe there's some cake, and pretty quickly after that, we're replaced, aren't we? And as you begin to think about not only your life, but the span of eternity, you begin to ask, what's the significance of working? You begin to ask, what's the purpose? What's the purpose in my life? What's the purpose of having kids if we're just here for a short time? But what we find in the beginning words of Genesis is the truth about our origin, about our beginning, about where we come from. And the reality is that every thinker needs to wrestle with the, this question, the question of where we came from. I mean, if you want to understand your life, if you want to have a worldview that kind of helps you live in this world that God created, you kind of need to answer three questions. You need to answer where we came from. You need to answer the question why we're here. And you need to answer the question where are we, are we going? These are the big worldview questions that each worldview must address. And what God wants to do for us this morning is address the issue of our origin. Where did we come from? Now, here's the reality. We live in a world that fundamentally major, the majority of people might describe themselves as agnostic. And I don't know if you've ever heard that word before, so let me explain it to you. A in Greek means no, and gnosis means knowledge. And so the idea is that, that most of the time when you talk to an agnostic, they'll just say, I don't know. And really what the agnostic view is at its core, and I think a lot of people misunderstand it, is that it's an argument that you can't know. It's not just that you don't know. The agnostic view is that you can't know how we came into being. 
And so I have invented a word to describe what I think is the most popular view when it comes to the belief in our origin. And many of you know that whenever I invent a word, it doesn't gain any traction because it's pretty bad. But I went to the Greek here, so hopefully this one sticks. And the, the word is this, that many of us and many in our culture are a mellowists, a mellowists. And in the Greek, that means a, no, and mellow means care. See, most of the people I talk to, as I share the gospel with people, just, they just really haven't thought about it. They've never really thought about where they came from. They're just kind of living this life, doing the things that most people do, getting married because most people get married, having kids because most people get, have kids, and they're kind of just living day to day, looking for joy as they find it. But this is what I want to propose to us, is that when you start with God, when you see your beginning, all the puzzle pieces of your life begin to fit together correctly. And all the things that you once pursued as an agnostic, as an atheist, as a mellowist, all those things that you pursued, looking to find joy, looking to find significance, looking to find satisfaction, you find them once you find God and begin your life with him. All the puzzle pieces of your life begin to fit together. You start to be able to make sense of the story that you're living and that you've been living for years now. And so understand in this very moment that God has you here for a reason. This is God's grace to you to bring you back to the beginning, to help you understand about your origin, the origin of your story. And so I want you to see this in Genesis 1.1. We're just going to be in the first verse because this is a packed verse. The first thing I want you to see about your story is that God is the cause of your story. God is the cause of your story. Look at the first three words there where it says, in the beginning. In the beginning. And so our question needs to be, in the beginning of what? Was this the beginning of God? Was this when God came into being? This is a really important worldview question because materialism would say that the only eternal thing is material. And that for all of eternity, material has existed. And at the very first three words of Scripture, the Christian worldview comes to butt against that worldview to say that in the beginning was God. There was no material. God had existed for all of eternity. And so these words aren't talking about the beginning of God. But we need to wrestle with that question. When did God begin? When did God come into being? And the answer of Scripture is that he didn't. He's been eternal. And while our world isn't eternal, as our, while our world, Genesis 1 says, has a beginning, God does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He's eternal. And so you ask, what was God doing before the foundation of the world? Was he just twiddling his thumbs for all of eternity? And the answer that Scripture gives is that because God is love, that's what John says, God is love. God has been existing for all of eternity in a relationship of love. For all of eternity, before the foundation of the world, this is how God existed. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. And the Spirit was the union of their love. Now, I can tell by the way you're looking at me, you're saying, this makes no sense. And I want to declare to you, I'm on the same boat. But this is the witness of Scripture, that we serve a God who is triune. It's one God in three persons. And the reason that God could exist for all of eternity is because he existed in this relationship in which he was completely satisfied. This is the testimony of Scripture, is that you are not needed. What a comforting 
message for you to hear on launch Sunday. God didn't create you because he needed you. He's eternal, and not only is he eternal, God is self-sufficient. If Genesis 1-1 never happened, if there was never a beginning to our story, God could exist forever, sufficient in and of himself. He wasn't lonely. God wasn't in heaven, loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit being the union of the, an expression of that love for eternity until the point that they said, all right, this is really boring. Like the reason that some people have kids, like I just can't stand you anymore, so we got to get someone else in this house. And that's not what God did. Nothing compelled God to create us out of necessity. The reason that God created us was for his pleasure. God didn't create us because he was lonely. He also didn't create us because he needed some praise. It wasn't like God was praise-hungry or deficient of glory. The Son was glorying in the Father for all eternity. And the Father was glorying in the Son. This is why... Jesus says in John 17, verse 5, and this is going to come up on the screen, he says these words. He says, and now, Father, glorify me, speaking of the cross, glorify me in your own presence, but listen to this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's not like God brought us into being so that we could praise him because he needed praise. He, he was perfectly satisfied with the sufficient praise of his son. No, what happened in our creation was that the Father's love for the Son was so full and overflowing. The Father's glory in the Son was so full and overflowing like a fountain that he creates the world out of the overflow of his love. And the most loving thing that he can do for us as a human race is create us and be the cause of our story and then invite us into relationship with him so that we can experience this overflowing love and this overflowing glory. He creates us out of the overflow of his love and glory. And I love what Jonathan Edwards says about this. He says, it's no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that is inclined to overflow. And the same truth is true of our God, that he didn't create us out of a deficiency or out of an emptiness. He created us out of the overflow of what has been happening for eternity, the love of God for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father. Now, the question that we have as we consider that God created us for his glory, as he created us to, that we might love him, is, that, is this. How can God cause us to be? And how can God say that our purpose is to bring him glory? How is that at all a good thing to do? Imagine that we launched this Sunday and I put up a sermon series and the sermon series was this. You need to praise Miles. Imagine that was a sermon series. I would hope that in that moment, some of you guys would stand up and walk out. Not even the back door, like you're taking the fire exit and you're going to spray the fire extinguisher on your way out. Some of you would be, would be kind of disgusted like that. Like, really? You're going to ask us to praise you as though you're something great? And here's the Father who creates us for his glory, to give glory to him, to give praise to him, and then tells us to live for his glory. Why can he do that? Why is it fair for God to do that and not fair for me to do that? Why is it fair for God to, to call all people to praise and glorify him and not fair for me to call all people and pray, to praise and glorify me? Well, the answer is that God is the highest being because in the beginning, 
was God. God was eternal. God was infinitely glorious and infinitely loving. That if God were to direct our attention to anywhere else other than himself this morning, he would be selling us short. God is the highest being. He's the greatest joy of our lives. He's the deepest well and fountain of satisfaction. And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that this self-sufficient God invites us, despite our sin, despite our sin, to make our story all about him. God's the cause of our story. He doesn't need us. He chooses to create us. And this is the application from God's word for you this morning, that because God is sufficient, you don't need to be. Because God is self-sufficient, you don't need to be self-sufficient. We didn't cause ourselves to come into being. We didn't start our story. And so the story isn't about us. Our story as human beings is entirely about God. He's the cause of our story. He's the reason that we came to be. And our story as human beings, really our life, comes in the middle of a story that's all about God. See, some of us, we kind of live like we're the main star on this new hit Netflix series. And we live as though everything revolves around us. But really what it is more like is like you're kind of like a a B character on season 17 of Law and Order. And no one really watches it anymore, but you're there. You're part of the story. And this is the reality of our story is that God caused it to happen. We aren't the main characters. We exist to bring praise and glory and honor to him. Church, there's great freedom we should take in knowing this. There's great freedom in the reality that many of us, again, launch Sunday, hard, cold truth. Are you ready for this one? Many of us will die and many of us will be forgotten. I think about my great-grandparents. I don't even really know their names, and I could do a bit of research, probably a few minutes to figure it out, but then past that to know their life, to know what they did. And I'm, you know, can be pretty ignorant with that stuff, and so maybe you know your great-grandparents, but what about your great-great-grandparents? See, in the matter of three generations, most of us will be completely forgotten. Most of us in this room will not have biographies written about us. I often wonder what a biographer might say if he were to write a biography of my life. I think it might be pretty boring. I don't know if anyone want to read it. The biographer might say, oh, on this day, he made another coffee. You turn to the page the next day. And then this day, he made another coffee. Chapter five, new roasting method. I don't know. I don't know what the biographer would say. And maybe some of you are special enough to have a biography written of you someday, and that'll be really special. But the reality is, how long is that biography going to be around for? The reality is most of us will die and be forgotten And I think the words of Nicholas Ludwig, who was on the path to be a governor, his father was was a ruler, because he was the son of his father, he was supposed to be something special, but he lived his life to preach the gospel, and he said these words, he's known for these words, he said these words, preach, die, and be forgotten. And I think those are beautiful words. Maybe we're not preachers of the gospel, but ultimately to live for God to die and to be forgotten. Now we hear this news and and some of us are maybe sad, but I want you to realize that this is amazing news. This is gospel news. That you don't have to be self-sufficient in and of yourself. 
Your worth as a human being has nothing to do with your self-sufficiency. It has nothing to do with your accomplishment. This is amazing news in our world, isn't it? Because the predominant view of our world is that your worth as a human being comes from your self-sufficiency. Your worth as a human being comes from your ability to provide for yourself. This is why one of the arguments for abortion is that as long as the baby isn't able to survive outside of the womb, then it's not a human being. And underneath that argument is this idea that a human being is someone who could provide for themselves, who's sufficient in and of themselves. This is the same argument for euthanasia, that once as a human being you've grown so old that your body can no longer take care of yourself, you're no long, you cease to be a human. And the Bible interrupts this narrative to say that your humanity has nothing to do with what you can contribute, nothing to do with what you can accomplish, nothing to do with your self-sufficiency, and everything to do with who God created you to be. We don't exist to be self-sufficient. And yet we live in a world where we hear this kind of language all the time that affirms that you are kind of sufficient in yourself. And so you might go on Instagram and and someone, you know, shares a post about how they got this job interview coming up. And what do you read? You read, oh, you've got this. You've got this. You can do it. If you just look deep enough inside of yourself, you can be sufficient. Just trust your guts. You're more than enough for this. This is the language we hear. It's this idea that we're sufficient in ourselves. And and Jesus steps in and he says, it's not about your sufficiency. That's why in John 15, verse 5, he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus comes and he reverses the script. It's not about how much you can do. It's really about the reality that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Jesus is not looking for self-sufficient people. Jesus is not looking for those who can help themselves. Jesus is coming for those who aren't self-sufficient. He came to do something through a people who could do nothing. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, hey, follow me once you get your life together. You know, once you're accomplishing some goals, once you're a little more moral, a little more righteous, then you can follow me. Instead, what Jesus says, that if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. It has nothing to do with your self-sufficiency, everything to do with his sufficiency working through you. Wouldn't it be true that if, if our relationship with God had anything to do with our sufficiency, we would just lessen God's sufficiency? God's not looking for us to be on his team as though we could add anything to him. If we were to add anything to God, it would take away from him. In fact, this truth has been illustrated in my household numerous times as my oldest daughter has come to learn to play card games. And then whenever I play a card game with her, my second daughter, who's not yet old enough to play card games, comes and joins my team. And I have about a minute of patience with this because I firmly believe in the parenting rule that you should always win against your kids and never let them win. And so my second youngest daughter comes who's not at the age of understanding and she's flipping cards and showing my cards and I start to lose my mind you're not adding anything to my team go to your room that's a silly way to illustrate a principle of what would happen if we thought we could contribute to God's kingdom church we need this truth we need this truth a few weeks ago we sent out a serving survey 
And we asked for many of you to think about ways that you might serve the kingdom of God in this church. And we were honestly so blessed by that, by how the response, by the eagerness of so many to just serve wherever they could. We're incredibly encouraged. But I want you to know, and I think Joel and Hanya might come and tackle me as I say these words, if you desire to serve this church because you think you have something amazing to contribute to this church in and of yourself, we don't want you. If you think that you are self-sufficient and you can be the life of this church and you can revive this church and you can bring life to this church, we don't want you. We don't want you to attempt to do the work that only God can do. But something is drastically different. See, if we had a hundred volunteers who were serving in the power of their own flesh, who were serving in the power of their own self-sufficiency, it would be better just to have one or two who were serving to give glory to God. It would be better to have one or two who each morning they came just to set up chairs. And as they're setting up chairs, they're praying, God, this isn't about me. I'm here to glorify you. That someone might sit in this chair and hear your word, that their life might be proclaimed. As opposed to the person who's over here and is setting up chairs and saying, oh, this church better be so thankful for me. I'm so amazing coming here early. God's looking for us not to be self-sufficient, but to be God-sufficient. He's the cause of our story. He's self-sufficient, not us. The second thing I want you to see about your story, as God is the origin of our story, is that God is the center of your story. God's the cause of your story, but God is also the center of your story. And so notice what the fourth word there says. It says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The Bible sets up God as the only God that matters. In fact, Genesis is really an argument for God over all the other gods of the ancient Near East. Now, this is really important for us to hear because I can guarantee you that you are going to be incredibly disappointed as I walk through Genesis because we're doing an exposition of Genesis. And so we're going verse by verse. We're asking, what does Genesis say? And I need to be honest with you, Genesis never addresses the evolutionary argument. Genesis never really talks about creationism versus evolution versus naturalism. And sometimes we look at Genesis trying to find those answers, and they're just not there. We ask questions like, well, where were the dinosaurs? And other scientific questions. And the reality is that the writer of Genesis doesn't address these questions because they weren't questions of the ancient Near East. But what the writer of Genesis does do is provide an argument for God over all the other gods of the nations. You've got to think, at the time that Genesis was written, Genesis chapter 1, the people of God were in Egypt. And Egypt had their own creation stories. They believed in a plurality of gods. And the people of God had come from Babylon. And we're around Babylon, and they had heard the stories of Babylon about the god Marduk, who in a battle with all the other gods won, and out of that battle came the creation of the world. See, they had creation stories, but what happens in Genesis is God asserts himself as the creator over all other gods. There is nobody like this God. He's the center of the universe. Therefore, he's the center of our story. We are created by God. In the original language, this word God is not the name for God, which was typically Yahweh. In English, many times we'll say Jehovah. It wasn't the name for God. It was just the word for God. It was the way that you could speak of the gods of the other nations. And it's significant that 
the, that Moses doesn't use the name Yahweh and instead uses the word Elohim, which just means God and doesn't specify God in who he is. The significance of this is that if other nations were to look at Israel and see that their God in Genesis 1-1 had a name, they might just think that, oh, that's Israel's God, Yahweh. See, the reality was that in that day, there, there was a belief in pluralism. It wasn't monotheism like the Christian worldview, that there's only one God. It was a pluralism view. And so it was fine. However many gods there were, it's fine. God, Israel, you have your God. Babylon, you have your God. Egypt, we have our gods. Moses wants the nations to understand something, that God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He's the creator of creators. And so in Genesis 1, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth. That is to say, God creates everything, even the gods of this world. He's sovereign not just over Israel. He's sovereign not just over our lives. He's sovereign over the whole world. And this is so important for us to hear this morning because God is setting himself in our lives as the center of our story. He's the center of it. He's the force around which all the things in our life rotate. He's the gravitational pull that keeps our life in balance. This is why throughout the scriptures, idolatry is laughable to the prophets. They look at the idolatry of other nations and it's like, that's ridiculous that you wouldn't serve the creator. Why are you serving created things? Like anything other than God, anything other than Yahweh is a created thing. And yet people, instead of bowing down to the God, the creator, the highest glory, the highest love, instead they're bowing down to things that are created. And it's laughable. I love what Isaiah says in chapter 44, and I'm going to read for a while here because I think if you really understand what Isaiah is getting at, it's pretty humorous. And many times in Scripture, the Scriptures share humor, and I think this is one of them in the prophets as he looks at the other nations. In Isaiah 44, it's going to come up on the screen, and here we go. This is going to go for, oh, do we have Isaiah 44? No? There we go. Isaiah 44, verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. He goes on. In a moment, he goes on when we click over to the next slide. Here we go. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and in his strength, he fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And so the carpenter stretches a line. He mark it, marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with pl pl planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it to the, into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He's using this wood that he's grown to cook himself food. Also, out of the same wood, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. 
Over half of it he eats, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see it and their hearts so that they cannot understand it. This is humorous to the prophets. This idea that you would create this idol and out of the same wood that you'd create the idol that wood would be just as worthwhile to you to throw in the fire and warm yourself and to bake yourself lunch to make a grilled cheese sandwich over the wood that you're going to make a god out of in a few minutes and bow down and worship the prophets laugh at the foolishness of our sinfulness how you could try to create a god out of a thing that was created And yet this is the same reality of our sin, isn't it? We don't make wooden idols anymore and bow before them. But we certainly bow before created things. Things like money. Things like our possessions. Things like our reputation. All of this become idols to us. Things that God had created. That instead of worshiping the creator, we worship and live our lives to bow down before this created thing. And what the scriptures are telling us in Genesis 1 is that only God as the creator has the power to keep your life in order. He is at the center of the universe. He is at the center of our story. And as creator, he has the power to sustain your life. The problem is that when we put something else at the center of our story that doesn't have the power of the gravitational pull, so to say, as God does, our whole life gets out of whack. If God's not at the center, we can't understand our purpose. We can't understand our significance. We'll make an idol out of commitments and beliefs that we've made. We can't understand our aspirations and dreams. Without God, we can't understand any of these things, but when God is at the center, all the things in our life come into understanding. When God ceases to be central, all things in our life flying to disarray. And so let me ask you this morning, what's at the center of your life? What's the thing that all other things revolve around? Is it your kids? Is it your marriage? Is it your friendships? Is it your reputation? Is it your net worth? See, when you make God the center of all these things, you find that all the things that I just mentioned actually become good things things that you can actually get joy out of. See, God wants us to be good parents. God wants us to be good employees. God wants us to be good friends. God wants us to be wise stewards of our resources. The problem is that when we make these things central, they can't suffice as God. Only God can be the center of your life. And when you make anything else center, it just will not suffice. Love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Isn't that principle so true? When we try in all of our strength just to be the best parents that we can be, and we work up this grit, I'm going to be a good father, I'm going to be a good mother, the reality is that we always let our children down. And yet, you know what I noticed? I did youth ministry for 10 years. You know what I noticed? That there's a lot of different ways to answer the practical questions of parenting. 
I met many good parenting, parents that had different arguments for sleep routines. I met many good parents who had different arguments for homeschool or public school or private school. I met many good parents who had different arguments for how to discipline their children. You know what I noticed about a theme? Is that the parents who loved Jesus, who in the home pursued Jesus, who Jesus was the center of their lives, all those things just became proliferary. Because the center of their home was Jesus, and when Jesus is the center of your life, everything orbits as it should. Everything works out as it should. So don't aim at parenting. Don't aim at work. Don't aim at, aim at comfort. Aim at God and trust that as God is the center of your world, all these things will orbit the way that they should. God's the center of our story. The third thing that Moses wants us to understand in Genesis 1-1 is that God is the constant of your story. He's the constant of your story. He's the cause of your story. He's the center of your story. But God is also the constant of your story. Notice that in verse 1 it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What Genesis 1-1 is about is about the work that God did to create the heavens and the earth. It's about the coming into being of the world that we, li that we live in. And already you see the significance of Genesis, don't you? In Genesis 1-1, we've already answered the question of why, that we're here for God's glory. We've already, already answered the question of how, that we were created by God. And what Moses is now addressing is where. Where were we, we were created. And the answer that Genesis gives us is that we were created to live in God's world. As we march through Genesis 1, we're going to see this, that man and women are placed on earth to live for God's purpose, we live in God's world and creation. Because we live on God's world, God is constantly revealing himself to us in our story. Your story, whether you're a believer or not, your story is lived in God's world. That's why the psalmist says, the heavens declare the, the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. One theologian says that's like creation at all times is preaching the existence of God. This world you live in is constantly, through general, general revelation, revealing God's existence. God is a constant in your story, whether you're a believer or not. I read a study this week about an evolutionary psychologist who set out to answer the question why kids naturally believe in the story of creation. And they were coming to realize that the statistics weren't working in their favor, that when you polled kids at a young age about whether they believed in a creator or whether they believed in the evolutionary argument for creation, they came to realize that many kids just naturally believe in a creator. And so she said, why is this? If, if you are attempting to preach the evolutionary worldview, that's not a good thing. You want kids naturally believing in evolution. And what she came to realize is that in a kid's life, most of the things that they see are created by someone. They sit in this church building, and they look at the roof and the walls, and they say, well, who created that? And you say, well, the built, someone built it. And they sit in your home, and they ask, who created this chair? And you say, well, some carpenter put it together. And even in their play, they, they, they build tiny homes, and they try to build homes that look like your home, but they can't live in it, so they realize that the better a thing is created, the better the creator of that thing must be. 
But then they look at the rivers, they look at the trees, and their natural assumption, because they live in a world where so much is created, their natural assumption is that the person who made this world, the rivers, the forest, the skies, space, the universe, must be someone awesome. And so when given the choice, did someone create the world or did no one create the world, their answer is, well, someone must have created the world. And her conclusion was that you need to work to reverse that belief and show them that there's a separation between things that are created and things that are not. And our conclusion is that, because, is that that is because they live in God's world. And when you look at God's world, it's constantly preaching his existence. That's why Roman, Paul in Romans 1, 18 and 19, and this will be up on the screen for you to read, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul's answering this question, why is it fair that people should have the wrath of God poured out on them? And he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, what's the truth that they're suppressing? He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. This is what Paul says, that in the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God and the divine power of God are clearly perceived because the world's constantly preaching God's existence. But in order to live in God's world and not believe that he's the constant of their story, what unbelievers do is they suppress the truth. Well, what's suppressing the truth? The way that I like to illustrate it is, I wonder if you've ever been in a pool and you have a beach ball and you take that beach ball and you hold it underwater. And you hold it there, and what's happening to that beach ball? It's fighting against you, isn't it? It's, it's starting to bump up, and so you put it back down. You take one hand off and it starts to bump up, and so you push it back down. And what Paul is saying is that in order to live in this world and not acknowledge the existence of God, you must suppress the truth. If you're an unbeliever here, you live in a world where math is possible. Let me give you an example of this. You live in a world where math is possible. You live in a world where in our school systems, I hope we still teach this, I'm not confident that we will forever, that one plus one is two. I had to really check my math there because I went to Bible college for a reason and it was to get away from math was one of them. One plus one is two. And you trust that for all time, one plus one has equaled two. You trust that on your test tomorrow, when you do math and you're asked what one plus one is, the answer will still be two. See, math is only possible in an ordered world, isn't it? Math is only possible in a world that's not random and by chance. That's not just chaos. That's not evolutionary progression. Math is only possible in a world where God is sustaining things so that one plus one will always equal two. And so in order to live in a world that's constant because of God, that's sustained because of God, you've got to suppress the truth. Or take science, for example. Science is only possible in a world that God is constantly sustaining. When you do science, you're trusting that you're observing one thing, one reality today that will be the same if you set up that same scenario the next day. You trust that when you put the Mentos, I mean, again, this is the level of my science knowledge and ability to, to uh, test these things. When you put the Mentos in the Dr. Pepper today and you shake it up and you run away, it's going to explode. And tomorrow, when you put the Mentos in the Dr. Pepper 
and you shake it up and you run away, it's going to explode. And in a thousand years, when you take the Mentos, this company's been around for a long time, and so they're still there, and you take the Dr. Pepper, again, we all know Dr. Pepper is still going to be there, and you shake it up, it's going to explode. You live in a world that is sustained. It's not random. And science is only possible in that world, but if you live in this world and you want to do science, but you don't believe in God, you've got to suppress the truth that science is only possible. Well, we could keep going on. What about morality? What's the standard for being a good person if we don't have God who is the standard of good? And so even though as an unbeliever you live in God's world, you can only suppress the truth for so long, and God has brought you to this place right now to tell you that he is real, that he does exist, and to tell you that he's calling you to change the story of your life so that you might ultimately live for the purpose for which you exist, for the purpose for which you were created, that you might change the trajectory of your story. You exist for him. This is an amazing truth that God is a constant in our story. It's amazing for the unbeliever who needs to grapple with this question, but it's also amazing for the believer, isn't it? Because the reality is that if we know the story of redemptive history, of what God has done in redeeming his people, really God should have abandoned us, shouldn't he? And yet, what do we see all through the pages of Scripture? It's that despite our wickedness, despite our waywardness, God is always constant in our story. And you think about Adam and Eve, and they live in this perfect world. Then in Genesis 3, they mess up, and where's God? He's in the garden with his people. And then at the end of Genesis 3, he takes the, the people of God out of the garden, but he will not depart from them. He remains present with them. Until the days of Noah, where Mankind has become so wicked that God has to do a refresh, but he will not depart from his people. He will be very present with Noah. And after Noah, again, the, 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 the men of the, uh, and women of the world get wicked to the Tower of Babel where they're trying to say that they're better than God. And God scatters the people, but out of those people, he will call one named Abraham. He will not depart from his people. And you go through the pages of Scripture to find Joseph, and everything's going against Joseph, and it seems like the plan of God has been thwarted, but there is God working all things together for good until the people of God are in Egypt, and they're under slavery, but God is with them and calls them out in the desert, and through a pillar of cloud and fire, God is constantly with his people. Even when King David sins with Bathsheba, God will not depart. He will be a constant of their story. And just as God has been constant, a constant presence in the life of his people, God has been a constant presence in your life. He's always been there. You look back, you see every day, God has been there every step of every day. Church, rejoice. God has been a constant in your life. And the reason for this is because God delights to be near his people. I was reading it just this morning in my personal worship, and it's so fitting how God just brings these things up. In James 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God. He has know the promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Church, you know that God loves to draw near to you. God loves to be a constant in your story, to be a constant presence in your story. And some of you are here this morning, and you feel like judged by God. You feel like God would be quicker to abandon you because of the things you did and the things you do and the ways that you think. You feel like he'd be quicker to abandon you than to be present in your life. 
And you need to know that that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that we worship. The God that we worship draws near to those who draw near to him. Even in this moment, you humble yourself before the Lord. The scriptures say he will exalt you. God longs to be near to him. Near to you, church, you long to be near to him. Last thing I want you to see in closing is that God's the crux of your story. God's been leading you to something in your life that's the most important thing that you could be led to. And the reality is that the greatest question, in terms of the plot line of our life, the greatest question is how are we going to get back to God? The greatest resolution that's required in your story, in your eternal story as a human being, is that you find redemption. And this is the main plot. Will you return to this God who caused you to come into being, who created you to have him as the center of your life, and who has been in the, const- the constant in your life? Will you turn to this God? The amazing truth is that this is the plot of our story, but it's also the plot of God's story. Genesis isn't the first, the, the only Genesis in the Bible. It's not the only beginning. It's not the only origin. In John 1, 1, in the New Testament, John writes these words. It's going to come up on the screen. It says, In the beginning was God, the, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John draw, draws our attention back to the reality that Jesus has always been there. And next week as we study in Genesis 2, we're going to see that Jesus was there all along. Jesus was the creating power of the world. And this is what John is pointing us to, is that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was at the beginning all along. But that's not the only Genesis in in Scripture. See, John says that Jesus was eternal, but look what happens in Mark 1.1. In Mark 1.1, it says, the beginning, the Genesis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There was another Genesis in the Bible, and it was in Mark 1.1, when Jesus came to this world to provide a new beginning for you, to provide resolution to your story so that you could find the life that you did not have apart from God, so that you could be restored. Though sin had marred your purpose, though sin had ruined God's story in your life, Jesus came to offer a new hope, a new beginning. He calls all to believe in him, to turn to him and find significance, find purpose, and find the reason for which they were created to be in relationship with God and give glory to him. Let's pray together, church. Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a story. And God, you weren't like a watchmaker who created the world and then left it to run by itself. God, you have been very intentionally with us And God, we give you all the praise. Thank you, Lord, that we can look back on our life and see, Lord, that you were always present. Lord, we look at who you are in Genesis 1-1, how you brought us to be, why you created us, where you created us in this world. And God, we're given all the answers we need to trust, Lord, that you are still faithful to us today, thousands and thousands of years later, in this place, Lord. All who gather here, hear these words, that you are a God who's faithful and worthy to be trusted. And yet, Lord, we recognize that we come from so many different places. So many of us are in such dark valleys of life, without hope, without light. 
And reminded of, this, reminded of this truth, Lord, that you will be faithful to us. You've never for a moment ceased to be faithful. So, let, Lord, we thank you that this is all a part of the story that you are crafting, that you've been crafting for us since the foundation of your world, that we would live lives that bring great glory and honor to you, to participate in the love that you have participated with the Son for all of eternity. So God, we give you the praise and we worship you now because of who you are. Pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.